everybody. Hello. And hi. Hi, Skin. Hi, how's it going? It's really good. And I love the Elton John, picture of Elton John you've got behind <laughs> you and your wonderful piano, your white piano. I remember you saying you treated yourself to that piano. I did. That was um, actually my, um, my bucket list for my 50th birthday was to buy myself a piano, which is what I've always wanted from about 11 years old, and to learn how to play. So I've got the piano, but I um, haven't quite learned how to play. I'm still, I'm still having lessons, but I have the piano. I can practice. Yeah, great. Um, so I want to say to everyone tonight, um, thank you so much for coming. I, um, I know I've got a lot of my family here. Hello, hello. And um, uh, yeah, we're toasting tonight. Toasting it us. Mm. Cheers, everybody. Welcome. Cheers. Welcome. Welcome to the conversation. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I'll just say a little intro and then I'm going to throw some questions to Skin. Um, I'll say a little bit about um, how we started writing the book. Um, I was badgering Skin because I thought I was getting a little tired. Um, this was about two years ago. I was getting a little tired of all these um, accounts of the 90s, which foregrounded Britpop, and there was very little you know, no other stories seem to be coming through. And yet it was such an exciting time in so many ways, um, in terms of rock music and also drum and bass and um, uh, jungle and lots of new music coming through that was being ignored in, in these kind of official accounts of the 90s. Um, and also, um, I felt that there was a, a, a whole story there that was being ignored. So. Um, I kept badgering you, didn't I, Skin? Um, yeah. Say, you must um, uh, write a book, you must tell your story. Um, what was it that actually made you decide to say yes in the end? Do you know, I, um, you sent me the email and then I kind of blanked you, I must be honest, about three months, because I was like, oh, I haven't got anything to write about, I'm just in a band, big deal, you know? And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, there's this story and then there's that story and this story. I think I had a bit more of a fear of the fact that I didn't know how to write a book. Um, and I think, think when you started to like send me a couple of chapters that were kind of framed in some kind of way, I was like, Oh, let me, I started rewriting and started kind of writing other bits and getting involved. Um, but I think I agree with you. I think the more I thought about what you were saying about Britpop, I had this like one story. And if I hear another or read another article about Blur and Oasis, Blur and Oasis, I mean, you know, I really like, I don't like Blur, but I really like Oasis. And I really like Echo Belly and Elastica. And I love pop. I think they're a phenomenal band and I love Sway. But, you know, this was just a section of music. This was just a section of society and a section of music that was happening. I mean, you mentioned drum and bass and drungle. And I mentioned I would go two-step. And if you, I mean, I said it in interviews before, but for me, you can draw a direct line from Goldie all the way up to Stormzy and you're going to hit dubstep and you're going to hit two-step and you're going to hit all these other musical genres and um, prodigy you know there's like I think that's been way more influential in terms of how you listen to L London grammar and there's like two, there's like um 
jump and bass and jungle and all those kind of sounds in there and a bit of trip hop in there. For me, it's like you could mix Goldie with Portishead and then you get London Grammar. And also the way that music now, all those black references, hip hop, yes. reggae, tropical house, all those kind of stuff, they all come from this wonderful music scene that we have, which yes. is really a lot, it comes from a lot of the roots of black music. So I thought about that and I thought, you know, you're right, let's just start it and mm -hmm. um, let's just see where we get and let's see that you know people are even interested to hear like an alternative story of a Brixton black girl a skinny little Brixton black girl and how did she get into rock music and you know I loved in the early days um when we were researching it together and um I remember a couple of days when um you took me on walkabout around Brixton and um said well this is where I went to school, this is where I grew up, this is where my granddad had his, and we'll call it, it's not a Shabin, it's a residential. It's not a Shabin, my mum said it's not a Shabin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, something I want to ask you, because um, it, it really struck me when we were talking, talking about it and talking about your childhood, um, how do you think, what was it like growing up with three brothers, being the only girl in a family of three very, very rambunctious boys. And then did that prepare you for a career in rock music and playing in a band? Um, it was survival of the fittest, Lucy. <laughs> it was really survival of the fittest. We were all very close in age. My older brother was a slightly older and he was the first firstborn. So he was a bit kind of hanging out with his friends and doing other stuff. But me and my two other brothers, it was, it was survival of the fittest. We used to do all kinds of stuff and get all, up to all kinds of tricks. I mean, really, Brixton was our playground, and especially if there was a, a disused building or a broken down building, we used to sneak through holes and go and play and create all these different worlds. Um, uh, uh, to get, we had a sports center at the end of the road, um, and we used to go along the back wall to get to the sports station. We'd never go along the road, the pavement. No, that was too easy. That was too. Yeah, why do that when you can crawl through cubby holes and get to the back of the the um, uh, the sports center that way? Um, and in some ways, I I guess it. I mean, I I spent a lot of time with boys and not enough time with girls. So I was a proper proper tomboy. You know, we were all doing all the things that our, um, boys were doing. And at, at the same time, you know, my mum was really trying to make me be a bit more girly. She'd buy me dresses and she'd buy me dolly shoes, and I had lots of dolls. But it was much more fun to climb trees and to do all the kind of scrappy stuff that, that boys did. Um, and in many ways, that kind of um, preempted my situation of being in a band with three boys. You know, it, it was a very familiar, very well rehearsed kind of energy. I mean, I wasn't scared of it. I wasn't afraid of it. And I, it, was, it was my normal to be in a band of three boys, to go yeah. up with three boys and then be in a band with three boys. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I know how to do that. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, something that you felt comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's my normality was just um, that's sort of how I grew up, and that's kind of how I've had my love, my my life since then. And um, I was very fascinated by girls, you know, not in a kind of sexual way or anything like that. It was just, you know, when I saw girls doing their hair or putting on makeup. You know, I didn't have any of that, you know, I didn't have any kind of effeminate brothers. So, you know, I was kind of like, wow, because I never, I never had lip, I never wore makeup till I was 19. Yeah. And I wore makeup because I had to do a gig. And I think there's, if you don't get into it early enough, you just don't have that, you know, desire and excitement for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
Um, I, I'd like to ask about your relationship with some of the band members and what they kind of brought out in you. So you first met Cass, didn't you, the bass player? Yeah. Um, and you said that's when Skunk and Nancy um, formed. Can you explain why? What was it about meeting Cass that... that... I'd, actually, I'd actually met Cass through a guitarist called Blue that actually literally died, um, I think, three months ago um, of complications. Um, uh, to his heart and he introduced us to Cass or me and Lee um, and I remember the first time I saw Cass I heard him before I saw him because he turned up on this like Harley all in black leather all jetted out beautiful old vintage Harley and he took off his helmet and all these big long dreadlocks came falling down and I was like that guy is cool almost camp but not quite <laughs> Almost have, but and it, he was just cool. Um, and the thing about Cat is he's a wonderful musician um, and a very amenable guy. So I could kind of hide behind him uh, in many ways. You know, Cat would walk into him and be the star, and I could just walk him ex walk in after him and and just you know just you know take some of the glory that Cat would get. You know, I just take some of his shine that he had. Um, but really, that was the kind of beginning of Skankanetsi in a way, because we started off with different musicians, Len Aaron, um, the lovely Len Aaron being one of them. Um, yeah. and he was he was the person that we wrote all those early songs with, and you yeah. know, he's still a friend now, you know, we're still connected to, to each other for life, I guess. Um, but the, in terms of being a band, it wasn't until we got cast in the band that the idea of Skankanetsi started to formulate. When I say the band, because um, I was in a band called Mama Wild before I was in a band called Skankanetsi. And when we ended Mama Wild, we started up Skunk and Nancy, me and Cass started it. Yeah. And that really, you know, we, me and Cass got all the musicians together and started up the band and thought of the name and everything. Um, and that's when it all really started to kick, kick off. So yeah, he's kind of like a, a founding member of everything. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm, I really remember when you talked about um, writing um, A Little Baby Swastika with Cass, um, that that was a real moment, the, there, was, that there was like a spark and you recognised something. Do you want to explain a bit about what inspired that song? Um, we used to hang out in King's Cross um, and we used to rehearse in King's Cross because it was just super cheap. We had, there was a guy who owned a building that was about to be knocked down and made into something else, probably condos. Um, and at that time, King's Cross was rough, rough, rough. Prostitutes getting mugged, um, uh, drugs. It was really kind of scary, um, but it was cheap. <laughs> so, you know, it was worth kind of going for that because we could, that, we could afford King's Cross. And so we worked in this, we, we rehearsed in this um, room and it was run by this guy who you walked in and he had a massive British flag. And he was like a member of the National Front or something like that. Mm. And I remember in the studio seeing like a little um, swastika kind of just a couple of feet off, a foot and a half off the wall. And it was all scraggly and all weird. And I remember thinking, who put little baby swastika on the wall? <laughs> and literally that was my thought. Um, and I kind of went in with this idea of like, who put little baby swastika on the wall? I remember Cass kind of do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do because Castles has these complicated bass lines. He always wants to make it tricky and art-housey art and difficult. Um, whereas Ace wants to do like a beautiful soundscape, you know? 
And that's really where the song came. I was just like, who put little baby swastika on the wall? Who put little baby swastika on the wall? And it was literally a question that became a whole song. Wasn't it very high? Can it be more than four years old? That's who put little baby swastika on the wall. And it really was this sense of, well, if you're going to write songs about political things or write songs about things that are you feel very important about, uh, you feel very strongly about, you've got to write it from a personal point of view. Yeah. That way you stay away from all the big cliches, you know, they've all been done, they've all been done really well, you know, fight the power and strange fruit, these are incredible songs, so if you're gonna, if you have something to say, it was about finding a way to say it, so Little Baby Sostica was a question, and that question became the song and became the, why is there a Little Baby, so what are we doing, we're indoctrinating little kids, is that what we're doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, sort of moving, moving, fast forwarding a little bit um, to your meeting with Ace. Yeah. So what was it about Ace that made you think, yeah, he's our guitarist? Um, Ace, by this, when we were in a band called Mama World, um, we used to go and do gigs at the Splash Club in King's Cross. Now the Splash Club in King's Cross was actually formed by Ace, who was in a band called Big Life Casino. It was him and a couple of other guys who were lovely guys. Um, and so I used to see them perform, and, but the, basically to, to rewind slightly, they started the, the Splash Club because they needed money for rehearsal. So they thought, well, let's go with all these bands, you know, we, to, to come and play. And those bands, won't, we won't charge them, but we'll charge people who come to see them. And mm. that's how the whole Splash Club thing formed at the, at the Water Rats formed. That's how it all came, came to pass. And then I just used to see him play and I was like, that, is, that guy is a proper, proper, amazing rock guitarist and he looks the part and he, um, he just was a natural rocker and he had a great sound, he had all the gear and all the gear was important because we didn't have money so you kind of had to come with all of your stuff and all of your gear. Um, and I used to kind of sit and think to myself, oh, he'd be great, I'd love to be in a, I'd love to be in a band with him. And he used to DJ as well at the Splash, Splash Club. So when he DJ, I would just come and like sidle up and just like, oh, so what are you playing then? Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> and just kind of like get to know him and just be like, yeah, you know, yes, good record. Um, I remember the first time he played Rage Against the Machine. He goes, oh, he goes, look, I've got this record. It's a white label. Listen to this. And he goes, watch this. And he put it down on the record player on a, uh, and everyone went ballistic. And it was killing in the name of that first album. Yeah. You've never seen anything like it. Yeah. Like, while before it actually came out. Um, so when I wanted to, I ended Mama Wild, Lisa, draw up a list of guitarists that you want to work with. And so top of my list was, um, was Ace. Actually, I'll tell you who number two was. Number two was Grant from Feeder. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. yeah. You, you and, or oh, they supported you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've known them from the very, very, very yeah. early days. They were one of the bands that used to play in the Splash Club with us. Um, and but I said, the only thing about Grant is that he's already a lead singer and he's already a lead writer. So it's just going to be a fight. Um, yeah. And I was right. And I didn't have anybody else on my list. I just heard Ace. <laughs> And then you had one um, last, the last piece in the jigsaw was Mr. Mark Richardson, the Mr. drummer. So tell us about that, you know, because you, you went through a few drummers, didn't you, before, before well, you arrived? I, wouldn't say, I would say one. We went through hmm. one, one drummer and another guy. <laughs> no disrespect, but, you know, 
that's kind of disrespectful actually um but mark um we had seen he had seen us play the week before and said he really wanted to be in our band and then i think we were backstage at the karanga wars and we had worked with robbie france who was an incredible incredible drummer but unfortunately he had a, a, a quite a major al alcohol problem yes um and yes. so he had eventually left the band after we recorded the first album so then we were kind of trotting along trying to find ourselves a drummer it was a really critical time because we were doing really well and the album was just bam 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 going up and up um but we didn't have a drummer that's why we don't have a drummer on the first album cover because we actually didn't have a, a real drummer so we worked with another guy and in that short space of time he did um strange days which is a huge hollywood movie he was in that and he did a video and he did lots of um photography and promotion because we were just in that thing where we were doing lots of interviews and stuff um and then i and then but me and Cass had been like oh this drummer is not gonna work he was a great drummer but completely wrong style for a rock band he was um just had a different style of playing and i remember i was backstage at kerrang and i turned around and i saw this tall stunning like man mounting gorgeous boy and i was like god that guy looks good and then he came straight over to me and i was like wow i didn't have to make any effort there <laughs> <laughs> and um and then he said your drum is shit you need a drummer and i was like and that's you is it you know um and that's how the conversation hit off and then when we were trying to do do some recording and it wasn't working with the drummer that we had um we called up Mark and he drove four hours and got to London and did the recording. At, he started at 12 o'clock at night and he's been, he was in the band ever since. Yeah. I, I think it's so interesting, the dynamic between you and, and the guys and the band. Um, but you know, it's so the, the sound that you arrived at and, and your voice, your kind of real strong rock voice, that took a little while for for you to really develop. And I'm really struck um, when we were talking about recording the first album, Paranoid and Sunburnt, that you went through um, quite a difficult phase, didn't you, of um, uh, feeling a bit overwhelmed by the studio and and kind of finding your voice and thinking, you know, what what? who'd you know people around you saying you know you it, your vocals have got to be as good as Aretha um how did you kind of pull it out of yourself you know this is me this is Skin's voice how did how tell me a bit about that process there um do you know it was sink or swim um we were recording the album and I just remember feeling very 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 overwhelmed by the whole process We'd actually never really recorded before as a band. Um, we tried to do some demos in Cass's studio, he owned a studio at the time, and they sounded so bad. We were like, we cannot play these to anyone. So we had this thing where we said, we are not, we don't do demos. If you want to see the band, come and see us live. Because we knew if they came and saw, saw us live, we would just like blow everything out of the water. And they, we know that there was a great way for us to, to bring people into the band and to have people fall in love with us. But then it came to like um, recording and suddenly we were in this like really beautiful studio in the middle of the mid Milton Keynes countryside called Linford Manor and um, where loads of incredible albums have been recorded there. Um, and it was like we had the wonderful scene from Sylvia Massey, who was our producer who just finished, you know, she just recorded tour. Mm. Um, and we were, I was kind of like, I'd never been a house as nice as that in my life. 
and this studio looks really posh and everything looks fantastic and really expensive and then I had never actually recorded my own voice before. So the more we got into recording, the less confidence I had and the more I felt very much um, out of my comfort zone. Um, because, you know, it, it's actually quite, um, it takes a while before you learn how to get a headphone sound and learn how to project your voice and learn how to use a microphone. That is not a quick, easy process that takes a minute. And so I was just, I think everyone had this huge expectation of oh, the vocal is going to be amazing. They're going to be, as you said, Aretha, standard, Aretha Franklin standard. And I was like, I can't do that. Um, and I just can't, basically what people didn't know, everyone didn't know was I was just basically talking myself out of the band and talking myself out of being the lead singer of the band because I just didn't think I'd be able to do it. And I wasn't good enough and my voice wasn't good enough. Um, so I just did lots of really bad takes and Sylvia was great because she turned the studio into a war zone. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we went to the, the dump and we just got, we turned the vocal booth into a cubicle and trashed, like, got lots of wallpaper and trashed everything and and we were, um, and that, that kind of helped but I just did not feel confident and it was more of a, it wasn't anything to do with what everybody else was doing, it was to do with what, how I was the voices that were in my own head so yeah I had a bit of a breakdown and um I guess um I got through it by I remember the morning of and everyone's like okay skin needs to go she needs to go home she needs to go and get take a break from the studio and I remember saying I just want to call I just want to record one more vocal I just want to attempt to do one song because I think looking back I was aware that if I didn't record something then and there it was going to be a a, a huge mountain and a huge thing I was going to have to emotionally and spiritually get over mm -hmm. and it was just going to be it was already a huge mountain and it was going to become Everest so I was like okay I'm just going to use what emotion and everything I've got going on and I'm going to record a vocal um and that was what got me over it I, mm -hmm. I sang and I sang um 100 ways to be a good girl was a song I performed and I did it and yeah. it was really good and everybody was really happy and that kind of was the first massive step to getting my confidence back like a breakthrough yeah that was the breakthrough um that was a breakthrough moment and then i went home and slept for five days <laughs> yeah because i was exhausted i was literally exhausted i you know i find it really interesting that it's the song a hundred ways to be a good girl that was the moment that that you that enabled you to break through and find your voice do you think in a way you had there was lots of conditioning that you had to get rid of you know about what a good black girl from brixton should do and maybe one of the things yeah. you should be doing is singing in white rock and um yeah. you know it, it sort of branching out in ways that were weren't sort of proper weren't weren't right um yeah. And, yeah i mean all of those things i think that's very true all of those things um i was talking to um shingo from the noisettes the other day and she was telling me yeah when she started playing rock music you know people said to her she they started interviews of well what are you doing playing in the white man's rock band <laughs> you know um and that was a typical kind of attitude that we would get from journalists and get from people and you know you're strong and i feel very strong about it and i feel it wasn't my issue it was their issue but it does affect you and it does kind of creep in there and you mm. do not to question yourself and think god it'd be so much easier if i just sang, sang rap or something yeah. um but actually it wouldn't be because i can't i can't rap to save my life you know if i had to rap for my life and for the savior of the world the world be over 
and so you know it was um it was that sense of kind of like well if I don't do something right now to sort this out and to sort out my mentality and my, I, I didn't have the word mental health in my brain because those are new words. But if mm. I didn't, I, I had this very strong sense of if I didn't sort it out right now, if I didn't mm. fix it and sing a vocal right now, this was going to be something that was going to affect me um, walking up to the microphone for the rest of my career. Um, and I still walk up to the microphone and have a bit of like, oh, this is scary. And I could still, I can't wait to record my vocals so that it's over. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm much burdened, but I still walk up to the microphone with a bit of trepidation um, because there's a part of me that still thinks, oh, you're not very good at this, are you? But interestingly, when you play live, um, and I'm sure, you know, everyone here tonight would say the same, I'm sure, you, that has seen you live. Um, that's where Skunk and Nancy are completely on fire. Um, do you want to say a bit about that, what it means to you um, to play live and to really um, create that um, rapport with the audience? How do you do that? Well, you know, it's um, the thing about playing live um, is that that's the one thing we had over everybody else, you know? We knew we had good songs, but we knew we didn't have demos and we didn't know how to record them. We needed a producer. Um, but being in the studio was not our strong point. Playing live was our strong point. I think you've got to, I think people have got to understand that we were being judged by a completely different parameters to all the other bands that we were surrounded by. Um, mainly because it was me and Cass in the band and we were playing rock music. Um, and it was weird as hell for, for a lot of people. Um, our first drummer um, that we had in, in Skankanetsi, Malcolm, he basically left the band after one gig because he said, oh, they're never going to be famous with her singing. And so that was the, we realised very early on that, that it was going to be difficult and it was going to be weird and that we were in a little King's Cross bubble, but it wasn't normal for me to be fronting a band. And so we knew that we just had to be much better than everybody else. Otherwise, we didn't have a chance in hell of any kind of success. And we didn't have a chance in hell of having any support in the industry. Um, and to be honest, we never really did get the support in the industry. Right? Um, but it didn't matter because what we got was the people by playing live and being in a good big rock band, we had the support of the audience and the support of the people. And that's what made Skunk and Nancy. It was the fans. It wasn't the industry, it wasn't the establishment, because the establishment are all of those big radio stations. Um, but it was the independents like Rough Trade um, all up and down the country. And there were loads and loads of them that were putting on, we would do gigs in record shops and we would do gigs in people's houses in those first tours. Um, and so it was the independent network and it was the um, kind of anti-establishment attitude and musicians and bands and people that and fanzines that that took us on um it and and, and it all came from being a great live rock band um mm. seen when we were on that first rap boss tour with the for the enemy um you know other bands were the 60 foot dolls were going around trashing the fucking place like letting off fire extinguishers and all that kind of stuff and we knew that you know what that's fine if cast did that we'd be in prison you know, we would have, police would have been around and we would have gone to jail. You know, we weren't being, and that's not just because he's black, you know, it's just because we knew that we didn't have 
the same you know kudos and the same kind of allowances that that, that other people had um so our thing was like whatever's going on we just keep doing a great live gig and that's where we prove everybody wrong yeah um the other thing that i love about um and we talked a lot about um style and how um you've created your own style and uh, because there's so much pressure to be marketed in a particular way as a female artist, isn't there? And look sexy in a certain way. Um, and yet you evolved your own style from quite early on. And the other thing that's really nice is that that was something that um, Alexander McQueen really appreciated about you. Can you say a little bit about that friendship? I mean, you know, the thing about it was when I, when I was in Mama Wild, that's when we made a lot of mistakes and that's when we had to learn about style and learn all of those things because I didn't grow up in an environment where I could afford Alexander McQueen clothes, you know. Um, I grew up in, a, in an environment where, you know, market clothes was fine. You know, market clothes and secondhand clothes and army clothes, that's, that's what we wore. Um, and it wasn't until we kind of got to a point that, that I realised that there is no point in me trying to look like the girl next door. You know, when I try and put on the archetypical rock look, you know, skinny black jeans, black t-shirt or white t-shirt and leather jacket, I, it didn't, it looked like I was trying to look like one of the Ramones, you know, it looked like I was stealing somebody else's style. Um, and I learned that the hard way. So after a while, I used to stop doing it. And, you know, then comes along grunge and all of a sudden the things that we're wearing is cool. I mean, I think you can never underestimate the effect, the effect of Nirvana on the whole music industry. I mean, it killed cock rock dead, dead, mm. obliterated, obliterated. Anybody who's walking around in spandex, um, spandex and big hair just looks so out of date and so 80s when Nirvana came along. Um, and, but Nirvana and, and all those Seattle bands, you know, they look like us, you know, because our fashion was anti-fashion, which is a fashion in itself. I recognize that. Yeah. But it was a fashion of like, it's about the music. It's not about what you're wearing. You know, we're just going to wear stuff that we've got from, you know, the, the army shop, Lawrence Corner, I think it was called, and um, Camden Vintage Shops and whatever, because it was about looking cool. You wanted to look good, but you didn't want to look like you put too much effort into it. And, you know, then Alexander McQueen, um, invited me to his showroom and you know I didn't really know what to do because I was kind of like well these are really nice expensive clothes I wouldn't wear any of it because um, you know I don't want to look like I'm too fashionable or trendy but I actually felt the material and I was like "Ooh, but this feels nice <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we kind of built up our relationship from then he actually used to live down the road from me um, just a few do doors down number 80 uh, Wick Lane he used yeah. to, um, and so we kind of, you know, if he was going out, he'd send, you know, are you, you know, you around, you know, call me, get, get his friends to call me. And so we'd hang out. Um, and he was just, he was, what I really loved about him is that he was very um, unimpressed by certain people and certain codes and by certain fashion people. I mean, there's just a lot of snobbery in fashion. Um, and 
we see a lot of that being broken down right now. Right now is a moment in time where a lot of fashion um, is having to change its whole mentality on what they mm. think is fashion and who they think is fashionable and what shape they think is fashionable. But back in the day, you know, it was still very snobby, but he didn't like it. He was actually very against all of that. Mm. And he liked, you know, beautiful, ordinary things. And he thought anti-fashion was more cool. And I guess that's what he liked enough. So he kind of had one foot into the two areas, you know, he was like the enfant terrible, you know, yeah. finding trashing things and doing radical clothes, making radical, beautifully made clothes. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the fact that he had um, a, a perfume that was, um, reminded him of Brute aftershave. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, it wasn't actually Brute, but he used to giggle to me because he goes, oh, smell this. And I was like, that smells really familiar. And he goes, you know what it is? And I was like, what? And he said, I mean, it wasn't Brute, but it was something like Brute. And he thought it was hilarious because he loved that smell. He grew yeah. up with smell to him that smell was amazing and he didn't care that it, he tried to copy a, a smell that was worth one pound fifty down the market <laughs> you know? I mean, obviously he did it in a beautiful way and it didn't smell cheap you know yeah. it smelled amazing but there was a familiar familiarity in that and he yeah to me about it it's like yeah 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 he was always he was an east, east end boy from beginning to start and he never lost that yeah yeah um, going back to your, okay, so um, I'm, I'm fast forwarding now, you know, um, Skunk and Nancy, you reached the peak of your fame with um, post-orgasmic chill, it's the late 90s, you're headlining Glastonbury, and then um, the band splits up, and what was it like um, then um, going and having a solo career, was it quite sad, was it, was it, um, did you feel, um, that, that you had to um, learn new skills at that point? Did you miss the band? Um, at first, not really, because I think by the time we split up, I mean, I was very tired of everything, you know? Um, I mean, definitely was like a few steps down. <laughs> Anyone that's been in the band, you know, have been treated one way and then suddenly you're solo and you don't have the budgets and you don't have this, and you're not kind of treated and respected in the same way. But I didn't really mind that because I just felt like, oh, I've got back some of the control of my life and I'm making music and writing music that I want to write and I needed a break from Skunk and Nancy. So, you know, there were definitely pluses and minuses to it. I mean, the pluses was that I really um, uh, understood all the instruments in the band. You know, um, yeah. I had to buy them all their equipment, most of their equipment. Um, and I had to learn about sounds and getting a band together. It took a couple of years for the, for the band to sound really good, you know. Um, so that was a massive learning curve. And then by the end of it, I really appreciated, you know, the boys and the kind of missed them because I, I still hung out with them. You know, I think Ace was the only one I never really saw because he had two young kids. He went off and had babies. But Cass and Mark, I used to see all the time. And so I was and they played on my solo albums as well. So, you know, there was always a bit like, oh, you know, what if? Um, I mean, uh, it's, it's a difficult one. I mean, I think there's definitely a part of me that wished we hadn't split up. But I don't think that we would be the band that we are now if we'd have just continued. I think we would have exploded or imploded. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, uh, my sense is that you each went into your own different direction and explored um, uh, different sounds, different styles, and then you came back. And it's partly because you realised what you were all missing. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely we realised what we 
we, we, we realized what we were all missing. And I think all, at the same time, I think we grew up, you know, I think mm. that we didn't appreciate the band because we didn't know how to, because we hadn't had the kind of upbringing where you could, you know, we were so unprepared with Skankanatsi as people, as individuals. Um, we really, I mean, Cass was probably the only one who really, you know, was prepared to it because he'd already been toyed with Torrance, Torrance Trent Derby, who was yeah. a worldwide phenom phenomenon. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know how to cope with all of that. And I think we, we really did exhaust yourself. We exhaust ourselves. And I think when you exhaust yourself, you just start hanging out with the wrong people and getting like weird modelly girlfriends and, and, you know, you know, all of the cliches that rock band fall into that make you just want to go. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, and so I think it was a good time to do that, you know, to stop um, and not ruin our, rep our reputation completely. Yeah, yeah. And you've come back stronger as a result. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, talking about Skunkanati legs that it would not have had had we continued. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And speaking of um, girlfriends, I think congratulations are in order with your oh, engagement. Yes. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, we're, we're, we're near the end of our time, but just something that I think people find very inspiring about you is your honesty, particularly your honesty and the way you, you um, bring that into your music. Um, and I recall we talked about how your manager, Lee, had said to you right in the very beginning, um, when you came out to her, she said, well, you know, you've got to make a decision now whether, whether you're going to be open about that or not. Um, and um, you do realise that if you, if you are open, you're going to sell less records. Was that a difficult decision to make um, at that point? Um, no. Naively, I would say no. It wasn't even a decision for me. I was like... Um well i'm not gonna i i it, it, it i was just not able to pretend to play straight i was i i was not able i didn't have that mentality um mm -hmm. and i wasn't able to have that lie i wouldn't i'm not able to have that big fat lie um mm -hmm. so it was there's one thing kind of having a relationship where you can't be completely open there's another thing pretending to be a completely different person um, and I think that that was a wise decision because since then I have met people who are very famous, who are very much in the closet, um, and it ruins them. It ruins their self-awareness and it ruins their sense of self. And I think it's a bad thing to, to continually have to lie about something so fundamental about yourself. Um, I think that's very bad for your self-esteem. Um, and I think it's it's something that the world makes people do, which I think is the one of the worst thing the world does and the worst thing that the music industry does. Not just the music industry, but many industries, all of the industries around the world. So it just wasn't really a consideration. I was very happy being out and gay. And um, all of my friends, you know, I had lots of gay friends and lots of straight friends and no one had a problem. So mm. I had no kind of perception of what a problem it would be for other people because yeah. everybody I knew was fine. And anyone who I didn't know, anyone who I thought would have a problem, I just didn't surround myself with those people, you know? Mm. Um, I was just like, yeah, I'm not hanging out with you because you're homophobic. I'm gonna hang out with people who are cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My nose is so itchy today, sorry. Um, 
And um, in terms of, um, you've written so many songs, and I know um, uh, every day you probably have a different favourite, but if you were really pushed to say your favourite ever song that you've written, what would it be? Oh my God, that's impossible, Lucy. How am I supposed to pick that? <laughs> what I, think, mind, though? I mean, it's, um, oh gosh. I mean, I, I, it changes. I mean, I think, um, I think probably The Trouble With Me is probably one of the most underrated songs that I've written. Um, and that was from your uh, solo album, your first solo album, Flesh Wounds. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I come back to Charlie Big Potato. I just think Charlie Big Potato oh. is a phenomenal song. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think that if you look at the history of Skunk and Nancy, okay, Hedonism is an incredible song, and so yeah. it's Secretly, and so mm -hmm. is Weak As I Am, which was the first song that I sat down and, and wrote with a, with a guitar. But there's something about, I mean, uh, Charlie Big Potato is a band song that we all wrote together. And you can see all elements of the band. You, for me, that song really typifies the strengths in every, all of us individually. Yes. Come together yes. to create that song. Um, and the video is amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's an amazing video. It did an amazing job for us there. Yeah. So I probably say, would say that that's probably my favourite yeah uh, all times I mean I I would agree with you there actually I think that's when you were all playing at your absolute I mean you know you've, you've been playing this means war for those of you in the audience who've yeah. been to the the last tour this means war was just a phenomenal song but but I think um Charlie Big Potato um there's such a raw power to that um yeah and, yeah. and it's kind of like typifies the odd weird. I mean, the song's called Charlie Big Potato. I mean, how ridiculous is that? And it kind of typifies the kind of the, the groove and the sexiness and the bottom end of Skunk and Nancy. Yeah. Um, and it's got like a floating kind of melody. I away from love the dreams. And then you've got this da 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 da. Do you know, Ace confessed to me the other day that guy is such a brazen liar. For 20 years, he's been saying that that da 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 came from, he was in a reception in a hotel and he heard a fax machine going da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I repeated that, I've been repeating that story for years and just the other day in the interview he said, he said um, oh yeah, you know what, I made that up. It's a good story though. <laughs> it does sound a bit like that. I know, but he made it up, but he did, yeah. he told yeah. I believed him for 25 years, yeah. 20 years. Yeah. However, I believed him. And then he just said it out in an interview. Oh, yeah, I made that up. <sighs> Outrageous. But anyway, um, that kind of do -do 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 it's like two notes of a riff. How fantastic. Um, and then it builds and builds and builds and yeah. builds. Um, and for me, that is a typical skunk answer. OK, there's so many amazing questions here. Um, so I'm going to try and do, um, we'll, we'll try and answer as many as possible. A question from Zarina, um, having struggled myself for the last months, I'm curious to hear how you've spent your time during lockdown. Um, well, for the, uh, like everybody else, for the first um, three months, um, we sat in our pyjamas, watched Netflix and ate popcorn. <laughs> and uh, it was just like, wow this is the first time in my life i literally 
can do nothing and nobody wants me to do anything. Um, and that was really fun. But then after three weeks, I kind of started to get itchy feet. It was like, actually, this, this might go along, might continue for a while. And we were in New York. I was with my, my quarantine fiancina. And we were in New York and we were literally, after a while, we just kind of got into routine. Um, I decided that I needed to start working out and looking after myself a bit more. And so I constructed a gym downstairs and I worked out for an hour and a half every day, five days a week. Um, and then I would go upstairs and kind of have lunch and spend the afternoon doing work, um, creating, uh, streaming, live streaming and various things like that. And then in the evening, we would just sit around and watch Netflix and stuff like that. And then came the book. Yeah. <laughs> then came finishing the book. Yeah. After about, about a month and a half of being there, it was like, okay, well, we need to finish the book. Um, and then it was literally, I don't know, 12 hours, 14 hours a yeah. day for weeks on end, yeah. writing, writing, writing. Cause I was in New York and you yeah. were in London. Yeah. So I had the morning to kind of, and the nighttime to get up to scratch and catch up with Lucy. And then I would send all my bits to Lucy and then she would do bits and send them back to me. Um, and then it was just a lot of work. A lot of work, yeah. And, I mean, it was just a, a huge amount of work. Um, and then it kind of faded just before we left. I mean, uh, we finished the book, what, August? I suppose, yeah, um, well, because yeah. that's when um, we did the audio book. There's a question about the audio book, but I'll bring that in in just a sec. Um, but yeah, I wanted to um, uh, move on to um, Molly Walker, who asked, if, I first saw you at the Astoria all the way back in 96, and as a young woman, it was mind-blowing to see you leap around the stage. Um, I'll just, I'll just, because it's a beautiful question. I swear you was climbing up the rigging and it was so cool and inspiring to see you, a strong, unfluffy, ungirly woman, just belting out the amazing songs along with other bands in that era, such as Hole, L7 and Garbage. Um, it feels very different nowadays. Has social media influenced our rock bands nowadays where it just seems the look is everything? I mean, I think there's a definite element to that. I think we're living in a completely different world with a, I think, and I think one of the most major things that major changes is that kids consume their music in a completely different way, in the way that we consume music. And also, kids, I mean, I was just talking about it with my other half, you know, in terms of just how kids do everything. Um, you know, they watch YouTube channels all day um, and they're on social media all day. And this is before coronavirus. Um, where for us, if we weren't there, we missed it. There was no sitting at home and, 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 and being connected. There was no connection at home. I mean, we didn't even have a home phone till I was kind of in my teenage years and stuff. So, I mean, yes, I'm that fucking old, just stop it. <laughs> um, and so it was kind of like if you went to one amazing thing and then from that you heard about the next amazing thing that was happening the next day and then it was like it changed if you weren't there then you just literally didn't know what was happening happening and you didn't you didn't know where the best parties were or the most interesting fashion and clubs and whatever you had you had to be out we were out all the time um, and I think that is the biggest difference. Even before coronavirus, I think that 
you know, a lot of the technology is designed to keep you at home and on it as much as possible. And even when you're not at home, your te the technology is designed to have you be, I mean, you be, you can be the, the, the most coolest restaurant or club or whatever, and everyone's still on their phones. Mm. Um, and I think that is, the, it's a different world. And I think kids consume their music differently. And as a consequence, um, how you look and how you dress, you're kind of dressing for the technology and what the technology is going to say about you and what response it's going to have as opposed to dressing for your friend that or your group of friends that you're going to see in two hours time or an hour's time yeah yeah and and what's so brilliant about your live shows is that um it's so um it, it, immediate and the the energy is so palpable between the band and you and the audience um that people just just there's a great sense of abandonment isn't there and not and not yeah. hiding behind the technology I mean, our, our gigs, yeah our gigs are not about sitting there and being entertained our gigs are about well you got to entertain us and we'll entertain you it's like a circle of, yes. of um entertainment circle of entertainment um and you know i think that's important for us i think what i like to do is just not have this them and us thing that's happening i realize i'm there is them and us because i'm on stage and most of the people aren't and i got to get back on stage to do my stuff but it's much more fun to come off stage and be in the audience and and feel the energy i mean that's what rock concerts are about it's not opera you know it's not classical mm. music it's it's about getting there and getting sweaty and just like losing yourself in the music um mm -hmm. and that's the wonderful thing about music about rock music i mean i'm scared for the gigs that we're doing because i don't know how i'm going to be able to do that mm -hmm. i don't know how i'm going to be able to get off stage and come into the audience i guess you know the venue might tell me i can't do that if the gigs mm -hmm. happen so i think that there's a lot of things i'm really fearful and i'm really fearful about how we are able to be artistic and how we are able to to be our natural selves within the new world and the yes. new world order that's yes. about to happen. Yes. Um, but I must say, the reason why I do that, quite, quite, quite honestly, is that it's just fun. Yes, yes. <laughs> and right, it's just yeah. fun. You know, I think gigs are fun. Um, yeah. And if you come off stage, and it's just even more fun. You know. Yeah. Uh, and it's you know a bit of a tease you know come off stage and then just kind of mess about with people it's fun yeah i've got a question here um i've got to ask this one because it comes from my niece katrin austin hi, uh -huh. katrin. hi. <laughs> um how did you feel when you first went solo was it freeing or was it odd without the band at first um it was both i mean i think that it was nice because i was doing my own thing in my own way and i was like um, in control of all elements of it, but I think those are the things that can free you can also chain you. <laughs> you know, it was like five times more work, um, and I had a lot of issues that I didn't even have to worry about before because you know I didn't have to play guitar, you know, in the same way or bass or drums. So you know, I think it was I learned a lot from it, and there was a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. Like being in Skankanetsi, there's a lot of good things and a lot of bad things, and you can't have it all your way all of the time. So the things that can, um, you know, give you joy are also the things that can give you pain. There's a song title in that. There is somewhere, isn't there? But I, I think the uh, thing about being solo, I remember you thinking that all the responsibility, the buck stops with you, and it's quite lonely sometimes. It's quite lonely, and it's actually, the, the thing that I found the most frustrating is getting an honest opinion out of anyone. 
<laughs> you know, because everybody's more, it's more important for them to keep their jobs and to keep their positions. So nobody really wants to kind of mess with that because, you know, they like where they are. And so it's really difficult to have, to just get an honest opinion out of the situation. Whereas the band, you know, Ace or Castle Mark will just tell me what for. They just tell me what they think. And that's just normal, natural. Um, yeah. yeah, I think um, being a solo artist is really fun, but it's more fun to be in a band. Yeah. And I've got a question here from Ant Thorpe. Um, how difficult or easy was it to record the audio book? And P.S. Thanks. Having a blind husband, this was super useful. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad she says that. I mean, I have a confession to make. I must have read four or listened to 400 books on Audible. Um, I have massive problems with sleeping and I actually cannot go to sleep without listening to an audio book. Um, and anyone who's ever been in the room next to me or whatever can, can hear that. Um, so I love Audible. So for me, one of the things where I was just like, oh my God, was when I, I bought the audiobook two weeks ago and I was like, but it's me. I'm in my own, you know, and I, <laughs> I have to be honest, I can't listen to it because it's me. But <laughs> to actually have my own name and own book in there, you know, the book that we've written, to have it in there, I was like, I had a moment of like, oh my God. That's <laughs> um, and it's um, it's not uh, it's not the easiest thing to do an audio book, but we I had a wonderful guy. Um, uh, we recorded it in London, and he was just the genius guy at working with me. I mean, I must have driven him crazy because I was making mistakes. I'm a bit perfectionist, so I was making mistakes or didn't like the way I said it, so I'd say it again and then again and again. I must have said it every line about five thousand times. So he had the patience of Job. Um, David did. Thank you, David. Um, but yeah, I was. That was really important to me that we had an audio book, and it was really important to me that I read it um, because I love it when the author writes a book. So we did it together, right? You came in in the morning, and then I, I did afterwards. How was your bits? Oh, I did my bits too. Um, yeah. What I thought was really nice was that you, you know, in certain bits when you were quoting lyrics, you sang them. You you sang them a cappella. Which... Yeah, the bits at the beginning of each chapter. I sang. Yeah. If you don't know this, if you didn't know this, now you know that I sing the, the lyrics at the beginning of each chapter. Um, and I, I can't listen to it. It's too like, oh, it's too, it's too weird. But um, I know I, I, that was really, I, that, I just love the fact that I did that and it's out there um, and that we have that. I mean, it's great. Yeah. Um... There's a book about Elton in there, hasn't it? Because I want to tell you a secret. Um, any unfulfilled secret desires, like doing a Bond theme, duetting with Elton, what would you love to do uh, and Defo still have, if you Defo still have the chance? I haven't told you that I actually have written a song with Elton John. No, oh. I haven't told you that. I forgot about it. Sorry, I should oh have told you. Oh my goodness, you. so we've missed that from the book. We're yeah, because he's a wonderful, wonderful man and we actually live down the road from each other in the south of France. And so I used to go and visit him and David Furnish, and we actually used to have um, New Year's Eve dinner in a restaurant together every year. He would hire out this a big table in the restaurant and we will spend New Year's Eve together. It was, I think one year it was me and Elton, another year it was um, all of us and, and Tina Turner walked in the room. Yes. Uh, wow. Hello, 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 Tina Turner, hello. She literally opened the doors and the whole restaurant stood up and started clapping. 
15 at the time I was arrived. Oh my God. Um, and so, you know, I actually wrote a song with Elton. Um, he actually came over to my flat and we wrote a song together. <laughs> brilliant. That is brilliant. Yeah, you're never going to hear it. Sorry, guys. Uh, okay, so let's pull out another question. Janet Davis. Hey, Skin, you're such an intense volcano of energy. My question is, how do you sustain such an intense energy through a gig, a tour, and a career? That's, that's really true. Uh, oh, it's actually Kate um, uh, is asking that. Um, the way I tell you a, a lesson that I learned in the very, very, uh, very, very early days of um, my career, um, my, my girlfriend and I, Maxine, used to have like every, you know, four months or so, we used to have a rave weekend because we always love to rave and we used to go out on a Friday and come back on a Monday morning. Um, we used to go to DTPM and um, Ministry of Sound and The End, DTPM and trade and we used to go to all of these clubs and in the back of the car we would have a duvet and drinks and sandwiches because you know we were skinny kids we didn't need to eat and we i remember doing that and i came back on a monday and lisa said oh you've got a day of press to do and i had a whole day of press to do and it was hell i was so tired and i was so hungry and I partied all weekend and I was just exhausted. And I remember coming back to the flat and saying to Maxine, that's it. It's one thing on the other. I cannot drink and I cannot go out all weekend and expect to have any kind of success. Um, and after that, that's when I started looking right in the early days of Skunk and Nancy. Um, and then that was it. There was very little alcohol. There were no more all night parties, no weekend parties. It just stopped dead and I treated myself like a racehorse or a Formula One car. Um, I worked out, I've always been a runner and I ate good food and I was vegetarian and I looked after myself. Um, and that really is the only way to maintain that kind of performance and to maintain the voice and to maintain any kind of physique. I mean, I'm older and I'm bigger now, so obviously, you know, I'm not a child, but um that it was one or the other you know I, I i do not drink if i have to have a gig tomorrow if i have to sing tomorrow i don't drink alcohol simple as that yeah. uh, because i know that my voice quality will go down by 50 percent or 30 percent mm -hmm. so you know i'll have a drink on a days off you know but yes. gone are the days when um i could be crazy and all that kind of stuff and expect to put on a good mm -hmm. performance the next day so, I mean, there were occasions where, especially on tour with therapy, where we would just get drunk and there were occasions on the American tour, but I would say 95% of the time, 90% of the time, I don't drink and I just look after myself and that's how I maintain that level of performance. Great. Um, uh... I just wanted to ask this question from Martin Robbie. Hi, Skin, your lyrics were the first to open my eyes at an early age to the many struggles and injustices in society. Who were the lyricist bands or bands that did the same for you when you were in your youth? Um, do you know, I never really was into political music, really, to be honest. I, I never, well, political music, what is that? I mean, I remember the first people I loved and still do was Billy Bragg. You know, I think Billy Bragg is an incredible songwriter and has found an incredible way to to vocalize that in his music. And it's because he's a very caring, empathetic, incredible individual. Um, 
but for me it just came out of this fact that i i was raised in a riot you know i was raised in brixton um injustice and all these things were just happening literally outside my front door you know uh, i have three black brothers and the, the, the things that they had to deal with were also stuff that we all had to deal with um i was raised in brixton which at the time was not a beautiful gentrified town that it is now um i was raised in an underfunded broken up mashed up place which was brixton um you know and and, and you know it was it, i guess it was just right in front of me so i think as a songwriter you're going to write about things that you experienced that are right in front of you and that that's love lust politics friendship stuff you over here on the tube but for me it was kind of like well who put the baby sauce on the wall it's right there so mm-hmm. i thought of a song like that kind of um talks about it and um, but as i kind of grew up and as I got older, you know, I love um, lots of much. I think uh, Nina Simone, um, Strange Fruit, uh, the Billie Holiday version, I think was um, first, and I forget who wrote it. But for me, that song I knew as a child, and it wasn't until I was literally 32 that I realized what the strange fruits were. It was people who were being hung from trees, that were killed and hung from trees. And that hit me like, Bam, you know, like a, a, a slab of concrete. Mm. And that's what I think I want some of the songs that we write to do. I mean, I want it to get, pe- to get people up and moving and to get people angry and to get people feeling that they should do something. Mm. Um, mm. I am not a politician, I'm a writer. So that's, that's a writer, a singer and a performer. That's what I have. Those are the skills I have to bring to the pop. Um, yeah. uh, some people have, they write books, some people do poetry, some people do art, some people do installations, you know, we all do it in our experience stuff in, um, in our own particular ways. Mm. Um, Jake Chapman is another one who does incredible pieces of work. So, um, I think there's this moment, you know, like, uh, Marvin Gaye, you know, what's going on, there's the Rage Against the Machine, obviously, what am I mm. Bands that I love, but I've never really tried to write like somebody else is doing it. I mean, I think that you've got to do it in your way, and that's what makes it work, and that's what makes it special. So that's where it comes from, man. Because I'm just raised, raised in a town that had to deal with everybody else's shit. Yeah, and you know, and that's part, that was part of the whole Brixton culture was, um, you know, incredibly politicised and vibrant, and and um, some amazing discussions. And there, there you were in number one, um, going to anti-apartheid demos, and and then and then meeting Nelson Mandela. You know, um, yeah, what amazing. I mean, apartheid. Think about that. How is that fair? How does that happen in modern society? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that only ended in the 90s. Was it 1991 or was it 89 that apartheid ended? I mean, that's modern. That's modern. How was how that able to happen? And you look around the world and you see all the things that's going on. Like, how is what's happening in America? How is that able to happen? So um, that's what it just it bugs the fuck out of me. <laughs> so yeah. I'm just going to say something yeah. about it. I have to ask you this. Moira Cash asks you, can you still do the back bend in the video? Like the big Charlie Big Potato video. <laughs> um, shall I tell you a secret of how we made that video? So people have asked me over the days, and I'm going to confess now, because you know it's been a while. Um, so the room was like that. It was it was a street, the room was a square. They built a room. 
and then they turn the room like that. So if you imagine if you have a square rectangle, like let's say a rectangle, and it's like that, and you move it like that, and then when you stand up straight, if you put that like that, it looks like you're leaning over. So I didn't have to do backward bend. I didn't have to do any of it. I was basically standing up straight and then leaning back a little bit. But because of the angle of the room, when they, they shot, when they turned the camera, the, the camera, the base of the camera was in line with the bottom of the room. So when you put that right, it goes like that. And so if I'm standing like that and it goes like that, it looks like I'm leaning over. It was a trick. <laughs> so I don't, that makes, I don't know if people can understand how we did it, but it was a camera trick. I didn't have to bend over like that. Thank God. Because I think um, I was broken my back, both my ankles. <laughs> um, I, there was, um, oh, now there was quite a good question about, uh, oh yes. If, um, this is from Joel Rutty. Um, if you had to sing one album track that wasn't a single on all your future shows, which would it be? What do you mean? Just like one song and that's it? Or... Yeah. That if you had to sing one album track that's not a single, but you had to do it every single show, what would it be? Oh, we do that actually. Um, we do... Uh a song from an architecture that I like um, we do a few songs that were b-sides that were never ever hits was twisted a single I don't know if that was a, it was twisted a single I'm not I sure twisted was a single, was a single? yeah okay. yeah well, let me think about it um the last album on architecture there's one song um there's one song and I can't remember what it is okay it's like a reggae song I can't remember who it is. Um, but yeah, we do actually do quite a few B-sides and album tracks uh, that people just love. Was My Ugly Boy, I'm, I'm picking songs that I like. Oh, that was a single. My Ugly Boy was a single. You'll have to write That's one down and I can tell you. What was it? Who's got an architecture? Yeah. An architecture. Hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. Ah. Look at this, I have this. I can probably tell you what it is. Yeah. Um, my love will fall is one um without you that's one can't get by without you that's a really really good uh track that one yeah yeah that's um that's, yeah, that's an album track that was um can't get by without you can't get by without you all i have seen I can't remember it. <laughs> it's been too long. But that's um that song has never been uh, released and I think we'll just sing that forever because I absolutely love I love uh that song and I love playing it live. It's really fun. Can't remember the chords now. What what's one that you'd like to do now for for us? <laughs> or even just a bit of a one. Are you trying to get me to play? <laughs> I am. I am. We're all back at yours now, Skins, so. Can you hear me? Yep. Let's do this like this. Guitar's that tune. Sorry. Lost in time, I can count the words. 
surprise such a gorgeous voice my fave thank you thank you anthem tune woohoo thank you everybody you're such a brilliant audience um so i think let's have one last question um now 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 um uh right uh yes i think this is a good one to finish with sonia long I can't ignore your question, Skin. So, what is love? Oh, um, got a t-shirt, Burby t-shirt, actually. Um, gosh, I think um, in many ways it's very, it's really quite simple. I think you know, if everybody just decided to be a good human and just kind of just treated people well, I mean, it's that is love really it's i mean there's so many things for different people but i just think you know just try and be a good human <laughs> yeah you know, we are the species that dominates this planet and um if we can just simplify it down to that you know we know what's good and we know what's wrong and we know what's right just kind of stick to that try and stick to that yeah yeah and we that's something if we I definitely talk about what is love i think that's a whole other question and answer thing isn't it so i think i keep it the, the, my company is called good human limited because i just think that's all we need to do that's all we need to be yeah you know it's very simple yeah right well thank you um yeah uh yeah lindsay nelson is saying don't be a bleep inverted commas should be everyone's philosophy cheers skin uh, don't be a bleep, you mean don't be a cunt? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't be yeah. a I think I think people know how, you're right, people know how to do it. Be a good human, be kind, Jill Jarvis. I, yes. I just, you know, random acts of kindness is one of the things that just gives everybody joy. But yeah, I mean, just be a good human, try and be positive and try and treat people in a way that you want to be treated. These are all obvious cliches and they're, they're cliches because they're right. Yes. Yes, and we need it. We need it right now. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. It's been so brilliant having the chat. We could, we could have gone on all night. Um, and um, thank you, everyone, for your brilliant questions and for being such a nice audience. Thank you. Thank you.